Well, recently, our microwave died. And being the uh, overconfident yet undercompetent handyman that I am, pardon the echo, uh, I wondered if it might be possible for me to fix it myself. After all, it just stopped working, uh, which means it probably just needed a new fuse, right? Now, another thing you need to know about me is that uh, I tend to be somewhat cautious about this kind of thing. And so when I saw this sign uh, on, there it is, on the microwave, which says, warning, microwave energy, do not remove this cover, I figured I should uh, probably take note of that. Of course, uh, I then thought to myself, uh, surely uh, that's only when the microwave is running, right? Surely that, you know, if you, if you took it off and then you ran the thing, then it would be like a nuclear bomb going off without the explosion, you know, that kind of radioactive energy flying through the air. Still, though, the warning gave me pause and it made me seriously rethink the wisdom of uh, whether I should just try and open it up myself and just fix it myself. Now, we'll come back to that story a little bit later on, but I tell it to, uh, as Braden has already uh, mentioned, make us think about your own response to warnings. In this morning's passage, Paul sounds a very clear warning to the Corinthians that they must heed in order to avoid serious consequences. And the question uh, each of us needs to ask ourselves this morning is, as we've already heard, how do I respond to God's warning? Now, as we explore our passage, we need to grasp it in context, of course. And over the last month, uh, Roger and Josh have preached on chapters 8 and 9, and chapter 10 is part of a big unit which includes those chapters. So those chapters 8 to 10 are all one uh, thought, one big thing that Paul is addressing, which is this issue of food sacrificed to idols and whether it's okay for the Corinthians to actually eat it. And so when we come to this chapter, we've got this going on in the back of our minds. That is the context in which this chapter sits. And when Paul here starts talking about food and drink in our passage, well, our minds immediately go back to the fact that he's addressing this very serious issue in the Corinthian church of food offered to idols. And that's going to become even clearer as we work our way through the passage, uh, through this chapter over the next few weeks. And so as we look at this passage this morning and we deal with some of the, the hard-to-understand bits of it, keep all of that in your mind. That is what Paul is addressing. So let's, uh, let's do that now, shall we? Let's open our Bibles, let's open our hearts as we hear what God has to say to us through this passage this morning. I have three points and I want you to take note of point one, which is wait for it. Take note. Let's read verses one to five. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, if you are unfamiliar with the Old Testament, what Paul is describing here is the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh's rule. Exodus means going out, which is why the second book in our English Bibles is called Exodus, and that is the book where you'll find most of this story. Led by Moses, whom God had appointed as Israel's rescuer, God freed Israel from slavery, led them by a pillar of cloud, which... Uh, Paul describes here as being under the cloud, like a covering, and that is exactly the same way that Psalm 105 verse 39 describes this cloud. And, and uh, so God led them by that cloud, and then He separated the Red Sea so that they could walk through it on dry ground. He gave them manna from heaven to eat, and He gave them water from a rock to drink, 
And despite their stubbornness and rebellion and repeated sin and idolatry, God was still faithful to them and still kept His promises to them. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt or the 2014 very average film Exodus, Gods and Kings, then this is the story those films are based on. And when you hear that story, if you're familiar with the central message of Christianity, the the gospel, what we call the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we could be saved and we could be set free from slavery to sin, then you can see why there are some very obvious parallels between this story of the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt and our story. This is exactly why Paul goes here. You notice his very Christian language by saying that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. That's an intentional use of this this word, which calls to mind Jesus' command to be baptized. That's technically not how you would describe that, but that's his point. Paul is saying that they were baptized because they walked through the sea and had walls of water on their left and right, and he is intentionally using recognizable Christian language to show the continuity between the Israelites and Christians. The God who saved Israel from slavery in Egypt is the same God who saves Christians from slavery to sin. But he does more than just use Israel as some kind of allegory or fable of Christianity, doesn't he? Did you notice what he calls the Israelites in verse 1? He says, our fathers. Our fathers. Now, this church in Corinth that he was writing to was made up primarily of Gentiles, not Jews. And as a Jew, it would have been scandalous for Paul to suggest that somebody who wasn't an ethnic Jew could call the the Israelites our fathers. Now, you could become a God-fearer if you were not an ethnic Jew, if you were a Gentile, but you couldn't become a Jew. And yet here he is, including them in the one family, saying that the Israelite story in the Old Testament as Christians is our story. It's our story. This isn't just a story with a moral lesson, he says. It's not like Aesop's fables. No, this is part of our, this is part of your, as a Christian, family history. And he then goes on on to describe that the rock that they drank from was what? Christ. The rock was Christ. Now, for any reader... That's a strange thing to see, isn't it? I mean, we sing the song, in Christ, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, and Matthew 7 talks about uh, building your house on the rock, which Jesus says are His words, but surely those songs, they're not referencing this verse, right? Well, yes, they're, they're not. Which is why I now need to explain to you an important theological word that some of you have perhaps heard before, which is Typology. Interestingly, the word typology comes uh, from the Greek word tupos, which is found in our English translations uh, in this very passage in verses 6 and 11. And in the ESV, tupos here is translated as example. But what Paul means by example, as I said earlier, is not just a moral example. Paul is showing how certain people, certain patterns, events, institutions, and other things in the Old Testament, they foreshadow the coming of Christ and His gospel. These types, as we refer to them now, carry within them the seed form of the full-blown message of the coming of Jesus and the call of His gospel. That's what we mean when we say typology. Paul here shows that the story of Christianity is woven right through the entire Bible. It's not just in the New Testament. Paul is showing that echoes of the gospel reverberate through every passage, every page of biblical history, and that God himself has actually worked out these plans for our benefit. 
This is why we can't just discard the Old Testament. And this is why Paul can say that the Israelites are our fathers. And why he can say that the rock that our fathers drank from was Christ. Paul isn't suggesting that the rock was actually Jesus in the flesh and that it wasn't really a rock. No, his point is that Jesus being fully divine and one with the Father, existing in eternity past, was truly present with Israel when they drank from the rock that God provided. Which I think is why he called it the rock that followed them. Because he's showing that Christ was with them the whole time. And that the same God who led them and saved them is the same God who leads and saves us in Jesus. But it's important to realize that there isn't complete continuity between Israel and Christians because there is also some significant discontinuity between them and us. And that's why we have the Old and the New Testament in our Bibles. And we'll, we'll get to that a little, bit, a little bit later. And so Paul's point in these first five verses is that our fathers were led by God, saved by God, were provided for by God in giving them food and drink, which he describes as spiritual, uh, to show that they came from God. And nevertheless, as he says in verse 5, despite this great provision and grace that God showed to them, he was not pleased with them because of their rebellion and they were overthrown in the wilderness. Despite God's provision for them, they rebelled. So why does Paul tell us all this? Well, we don't have to guess. He gives us that answer in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Verses 1 to 5 set the scene for what Paul is about to elaborate on in verses 6 to 11. And Paul gives these four examples of Israel's idolatry and disobedience in verses 7 to 10 so that we might not desire evil as they did. That's the purpose. That's the reason. If you're wondering why it happened, why it's in the Bible, the main reason is so that you won't desire evil. Take note of what happened to Israel. Their experience, their decisions, God's judgment on them serve as a warning. So let's take a closer look at these four examples, beginning with verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Did you notice the very first thing that he mentions? Do not be idolaters. That's his key issue. As we talked about just before, that's what chapters 8 to 10 are all about. And to really make that point, he follows it up with a quote from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. And there rose up early the next day. No, wait, I'm not going to read that. Braden is going to read to us Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. And if you're following along in one of these blue Bibles, you'll find that on page 41. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Thank you. You hear the context of that verse, don't you? Paul's not a dummy. He doesn't just pluck random verses out of the Old Testament because, you know, they support his case. Oh, here's one about eating and drinking, and I'm talking about eating and drinking. No. As you just heard, the context of this verse that he has quoted is Israel's rank idolatry. And this is one of the saddest and most tragic moments in Israel's life. Just think about this for a second. The God who loves them, the God who saved them, who just, who just rescued them out of Pharaoh's clutches, out of slavery, who just performed some incredible miracles like parting the Red Sea for them and destroying their enemies, who gave them food and drink and then put up with their whinging, this very same God whose laws the Israelites just said not long before this story, they would keep, one of which was the second of the Ten Commandments, is you shall not make idols for yourselves and worship them. That that is literally what they just said, and these Israelites, like a husband who doesn't care about the great love of his faithful wife for him, decided that they would reject God and choose instead to worship an idol of their own making. Paul appropriately quotes this verse because it not only encapsulates this context, but also ties in the issue of eating and drinking. He shows how Israel's eating and drinking was connected to their idolatry. And not only that, but they rose up to play almost certainly means that the Israelites engaged in sexual immorality. And you might remember from a few chapters ago that this was very similar to the context in Corinth where some temple feasts, particularly for the elite, would finish with the guests indulging in sexual immorality. And idolatry and immorality often go hand in hand and are often talked about together in Scripture, which is why we shouldn't be surprised that this is where Paul goes next. What does verse 8 say? We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This second example Paul gives is from Numbers chapter 25, where the people of Israel, as verses 1 and 2 say, began to whore with the daughters of Moab and then engaged in more idolatry. The judgment that the Lord pronounced on them for their idolatry and immorality, was a plague that killed 24,000 people, as we read about in Numbers chapter 25, verse 9. Now, I'm sure, like me, you might be wondering, where did the other 1,000 people go in Paul's reporting of this number? He, Paul obviously says 23,000, Numbers 25 says 24. Well, the first thing to note is that in Paul's day, there wasn't the same kind of concern for precision with numbers as there is in our science-saturated modern world. Nevertheless, there are numerous ways that readers of the Bible have tried to make sense of this, and perhaps the uh, best explanation is that Paul intentionally combines the number of 20-plus thousand from this verse and the 3,000 who died as judgment for the golden calf in Exodus 32-28 to make the point that judgment for idolatry is severe. Or whatever the reason, the point is the same. God judged the Israelites severely for their sin by bringing about a significant destruction on the people. And that becomes even clearer in the third and fourth examples that we find in verses 9 and 10. We must not put Christ to the test. 
as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Once again, we see here Paul's Trinitarianism and showing that Jesus is one with God by saying that it was Christ whom the Israelites put to the test. And here he's referring to the account of God's judgment by serpents on them for grumbling and demanding food and water, which we see in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. Do you notice again that the issue here is food and water? Paul's language of testing Christ also reflects the psalmist's recounting of this very account in Psalm 78, 18, which says they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. And of course, Paul's final example about grumbling basically encompasses the whole Israelite experience in the wilderness. You know, if you do a a Bible word search for the word grumble, then you'll find that almost every instance of this word in the Old Testament has to do with Israel grumbling against God. Perhaps the best example of this in relation to our text is Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. And this is a particularly helpful example because it shows that actually their grumbling was not against Moses and Aaron, but against God, which is what verses 9 and 11 of that same chapter make clear. And their grumbling against God resulted in their destruction. Before we move on, it's, it's worth pausing here briefly to reflect on this. I remember somebody once quoting Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And basically just saying, you know, see, this is why we shouldn't grumble. Pretty straightforward command. Just don't do it. And I didn't necessarily disagree with that, but it made me think, is that all there is to it? Like, do we just not grumble because we're commanded not to? And is grumbling even really that bad? Is it really that bad? Well, in answer to that last question, I hope you can see from our passage that Yes, it really is that bad. It really is that bad to grumble against God. But the next question you want to ask is, well, why? Why is grumbling so bad? What's, is, it, is it really that terrible? Well, yeah, this passage does give us an answer, doesn't it? Grumbling reveals a deep discontentment with the God who has given you everything. Grumbling reveals a deep discontentment with the God who has given you everything. Sometimes people today might say, you know, I deserve to have a whinge every now and again. You know, I have the right to complain when things are difficult. Don't you understand how hard my life is? Well, I would respond with, why is that a right? Why do we think we have a right to whinge and complain and grumble? Now, life is hard for all of us at different times, whether single, married, parents, grandparents, old, young. We go through all manner of difficulties and struggles that can make life really hard. I am not denying that. I'm not suggesting that you just need to suck it up and hold it in, like I have to do when I go to the beach. You know, I'm not suggesting that you have to put on a smile and pretend that you, know, you don't have any trials, that you don't have any difficulties that you are going through. But that doesn't mean that you suddenly have a right to grumble. You see, grumbling is very different to sharing difficulties with one another 
with being honest about what we're struggling with and, and want to walk through those trials together as brothers and sisters in Christ, holding one another's hands, really supporting each other through the difficulties of life. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not grumbling. That is absolutely something that we ought to do, something that we must do as brothers and sisters in Christ, as His church. No, grumbling is at its core a fundamental distrust of the God who loves you, who looks after you, and has given you everything in Jesus. Grumbling at its core is saying, sure, God, you might have fed me and you might have saved me, but I need more. I want the the sinful desires of my heart met, and I want you to meet them. And if you don't meet them, I'll find a God who will. Grumbling is one of the first symptoms of idolatry. And this is why the Israelites were destroyed by the destroyer. So we return to our passage. Now, it's, it's interesting that here Paul mentions the destroyer because the destroyer is actually only explicitly named in the Passover account in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, where the angel of death kills the firstborn of every household in Egypt. You'll notice in our passage, in our translation, the, the, cap, the destroyer is capitalized. And so we can't point to an exact event that Paul is referring to here, but I think he's done that intentionally because, have you noticed the way Paul has used the word destroyed a couple of times in these verses? Did you see that? In both the stories of the serpents and the various accounts of God's judgment on the Israelites, if you read them in the Old Testament, the judgment that they experienced according to the Old Testament was death. But Paul here heightens the intensity of that by purposefully saying that the Israelites weren't, they didn't just die, but they were destroyed. And I think that's why he mentions the destroyer particularly here. He's showing that the Israelites experienced the judgment of God. And so you can see from all of these examples that Paul gives and from the language that he is using that he is clearly not mucking around. He's showing the Corinthians and he is showing us through them that idolatry is a deadly sin with deadly consequences. But he's also showing us that if we think that what Israel, Israel experienced was bad, then we haven't fully appreciated the reality that we live in today. Have a look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. There's that word example again. And as I noted before, Paul is repeating what he said in verse 6. Verses 6 and 11, he he uses to bracket, to show that he's referring to these things that he's just talked about. But this time he makes it even clearer why this is so important. Listen to those words. These events happened and they were written down for our instruction. Take note of what happened. And these things happened for our sake, as those who would believe in Jesus thousands of years later put their hope in Him. For our sake, as those who would be welcomed into the family of God by turning from our sin and by trusting in Christ. These things happened for our sake, for our instruction. And that's what on whom the end of the ages has come means. The eras of history, the many ages of history are coming to a close now that Jesus has come. As I mentioned when preaching on chapter 7 a little while back, we are in the last days. 
And that means that the last days are when Jesus, it's, it's reflecting the fact that Jesus has come, He's begun His kingdom, He's welcomed people from tribes and nations across the globe into that kingdom, and He has set us that task of continuing to preach the gospel until He comes again to judge the world and bring a new heaven and new earth. Once again, this is, this is why we cannot say as Christians that the Old Testament does not apply to us. Paul just made that clear. It serves the purpose of showing us who God is, what He has done, and why that is relevant to us. And as he said in verse 6, part of that instruction is so that we might not desire evil. And the other part is so that we might not be destroyed. This is a warning, a very clear warning, because not only does God still hate idolatry, but the consequences of it for us in the last days are even more severe. Israel served as a type, as a shadow of what would be fully revealed in Christ, and part of what has been fully revealed is that idolatry and rebellion against God will not only result in death, it will result in destruction. Not only might we die, but we might be destroyed. Destroyed eternally in the lake of fire in hell. And you can find evidence of that in Jesus' teaching many times such as in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, and right throughout the New Testament, like in Revelation 20, 15. And this is why it's absolutely crucial that we take heed of this warning. And that is my next point. Take heed. Let's read verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Do you see what Paul's saying here? You can be so close to the blessings and the provision of God. You can grow up in church and have Christian parents and serve on hospitality rosters and experience something that confirms your feelings about God and maybe even witness a supernatural miracle. But if you're not careful if you do not heed the warning of what happened to Israel, if you do not pay attention to these examples from our fathers of what happened to them when they chose to turn away from God and worship idols of their own making, then you might very well fall and be destroyed just as they were. Brothers and sisters, this is not something to be trifled with. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Thankfully, when I saw the warning sign on my microwave, I figured I should probably do some research. What I discovered as I lost myself in the online instructables, was that while it's safe to open up the microwave when it's not plugged in, you aren't going to become the Hulk. There's a part in there called a capacitor, which if you're not careful with, can electrocute and kill you, even if it's been unplugged for months. So I decided that trying to fix it was 
probably something I should stay away from. And if anybody is handy at that kind of thing and brave enough, you're welcome to have it. Apparently nobody on Facebook Marketplace wants it. I heeded the warning. I pressed deeper into what that warning might mean. And it may have saved my life. God is here issuing a warning that is far more severe than anything on a microwave. How will you respond to that warning this morning? You see, it's just too easy to come to church and think that if you feel something while you're here, then you're fine. One of the biggest dangers that we have as Christians today in the West is that we can falsely think that we're not in danger with God because there is no shortage of people and Christians who would love to come along and pat us on the back and say everything is okay. And this is only made worse by the fact that the big trend in churches over the last few decades is that we ought to make church and and our gatherings uh, feel so homely and make you feel so at home that when you visit a church, you're never confronted or challenged by the gospel or about your sin or about salvation and your need for it. And yet... Despite that, that danger is still present. Even You could easily hear what I just said and think, oh, yeah, that's good. I mean, what JR has just said clearly indicates that that's not the way our church is going. It would be easy to think, well, yeah, our church isn't like that, so I'm not in danger. We've got membership, and yes, that means that, you, that we're looking out for each other and that we're re- holding one another accountable, calling one another to Christ. You know, we, we seek to be faithful in our preaching, We want to be a loving community that that speaks the truth in love to one another. But it can be easy to trust in that and not remain vigilant. To simply think, yeah, well, that structure's in place, I'll be fine. Take heed lest you fall. You yourself must be assessing your own heart, bringing yourself before the Lord in prayer, seeing where you might have your own idols that you are creating and molding and worshipping. And you need to confess that to Him, confess that to the Lord, and yes, bring that to your brothers and sisters and say, hey, please help me with this. Please keep me accountable with this. Please go to the Word with me and walk with me as I seek to destroy this idol before it destroys me. Absolutely, you need to do that. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to diagnose your own life, your own love's to see whether there are idols that you look to and value more than God himself. If you are a Christian, this is something that you cannot avoid. It is something that you must do. Christians are in the business of smashing and destroying idols. We are a company of demolishers. And that means that you don't just hear God's Word and understand it and maybe even agree with it and perhaps like it, but it means recognizing that God is a jealous God and will not share His glory with anyone else. And He will not share your heart with anyone or anything else. We cannot get complacent about this. Notice that He says, let anyone who thinks that He stands... Anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. But how do you know if you're worshipping idols, right? How do you diagnose your own heart? 
Well, firstly, to state the obvious, don't join in any obvious idolatry. You're not going to come across that very much in our culture, but when you do, and I'm sure at some point you might, whether that's overseas or whether it's friends who might want to get you to be involved in something that is actually quite spiritual, but really they're, you know, trying to say it's just a cultural thing, well, be more careful about that. Think about it, pray about it, talk to others about it. This is what Mark Elkington had to do when he visited North Korea a few years back. And I'll let you ask him about the details of that experience when he comes back. Firstly, that's what the most obvious way to apply this. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly for us in 21st century Darwin, diagnosing our hearts looks like asking ourselves what we do from here now that we've heard this warning. You see, it's just all too easy to hear it, to like it, to nod along, to talk to me or to somebody else afterwards about typology and be really interested in that and maybe even be moved and concerned about this danger of eternal destruction. It can be easy to do all of that and then do absolutely zero self-reflection on whether you are in very real danger of being that person who thinks that they stand but is really about to fall. Falling deeper into idolatry means becoming skilled at doing good Christian things like prayer and Bible reading and faithful interpretation and then never asking yourself if you're in that danger. Now, because it would be impossible for me to list every little thing that we might make into an idol, you know, whether that's success or career or sex or good, good kids and lots of money, all of which certainly have the potential to be idols, let me instead give us some diagnostic questions to ask ourselves. Now, right now, I just, if you're taking notes, I just want you to think about these things, and if you want to grab them later, you can listen to the recording and get them off me. Right now, I just want us to ask these questions of ourselves. If I was to get this particular thing, but miss Jesus, would I be happy and satisfied? What things cause me to grumble? Are they regularly the same things? When I'm faced with something in the Bible that I don't like or goes against what I want it to say, do I seek to redefine what it says to suit my wants and my needs? Do I do what Israel did and prefer to create a God of my own making rather than the one I meet in His Word? Am I willing to bring my own head and heart into alignment with God's truth? Brothers and sisters, we must Take heed of God's warning and the idols in our lives and seek to destroy them before they destroy us. Now, just in case you think that this is something uh, only someone who's a new Christian might struggle with, I think actually it goes the other way. (laughs) As Paul has been addressing this entire time, the, the Corinthian church was filled with people who thought they were spiritually mature. And so it's not actually those who have just recently been born again who are at greatest risk. It's those of us who've been around a long time and who have grown complacent and overconfident. As a matter of fact, perhaps the person most at risk of this in our church is me. Why? 
Well, because I have been recognized and appointed by you, brothers and sisters, that I love and trust as someone who is qualified to be an elder according to the Bible's standards, and you have set apart as someone that you want to support full-time to teach the Word. And so I spend a large portion of my hours and my days during the week reading and meditating and praying on Scripture reading commentary, seeking to understand what it is that the Sunday's passage actually means and what it means for us and how we are to live in response to it. And it can be very, very easy for me to think that simply because I do that, to think that because I have your endorsement and encouragement, that it must mean that I don't clearly have a problem with idolatry. That is precisely the challenge that I have been meditating on myself in preparation for this. As I'm sure you're aware, tragically, there are far too many pastors who have thought this way and did not realize they were worshipping idols of their own making until it was too late. And they fell. Idolatry is deadly. And that's why Paul says in verse 14, which we'll look at more closely next week, my beloved, those whom I love, flee from idolatry. The only other time Paul uses this command is when he says in chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. Search your heart. Search your soul. Pray the prayer of the psalmist from Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Root out those false God's, those fake promises of happiness and fulfillment and replace them with the one true God who alone can satisfy, who alone is the one that you were created to worship. And ask your brothers and sisters to help you. Invite their input. Invite their loving correction. I know that I need it from all of you. That is why I continue to ask you to give it to me. And do it out of love. Love is what drives us. Love is what compels us to have hard conversations, to be vulnerable with one another, to do what most people wouldn't. Paul did this for the Corinthians and he called them beloved. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ enough, whether those in our church or those who profess to trust in Christ? Do you love them enough to warn them? Does the love of Christ compel you? Take heed lest you fall. And I understand that this is pretty heavy. And it is difficult. It's a challenge. We're pounded with temptations day in and day out to grumble against God and to create our own idols and to live for things other than Him alone. And that is why, mercifully, we have the third and final point this morning. Take heart. Take heart. Let's read verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able 
to endure it. Take heart. God is faithful. In the middle of these dire warnings, wedged in between these serious commands to flee idolatry and to take heed lest you fall, like a ray of light in a sea of blackness, Paul reminds God's people of this solid hope. I don't know about you, but this verse is one that I held on to often in times of great need. Sometimes it even felt like the difference between faith and unbelief in my life was this verse. And I'm thankful to God for that. I'm thankful that God used it to press me deeper into Him. But when you understand it in this context, it takes on a different tone, doesn't it? As we fight temptation, as we heed God's warning, as we flee from idolatry, as we go about the business of destroying idols before they destroy us, we can take confidence in the fact that God is faithful and He will hold us. He will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. When you think that the struggle against the idols of your heart feels like it is going to overwhelm you, when it feels like you are making such little progress that it seems like you're standing still, when it feels like these idols are about to, to win the day, know that there is a real God, know that there is a true God who will provide an escape and a way for you to endure He is faithful. And the primary way He's provided that escape is through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Israelites fed on food and drink that God provided for them, but they did not feed on Him. They satisfied themselves with the outward food and drink that he provided, but they didn't satisfy themselves with him. Of course, the same thing can happen today. Roman Catholics and some other Christian denominations think that if you just take the Lord's Supper, regardless of what's going on in your own heart, that you can be saved. Well, Paul clearly shows that this isn't the case. The Israelites all ate and drank the, the spiritual food. They drank that which God provided for them, and yet many of them were destroyed. And that's why when we take the Lord's Supper together, we don't trust in the eating and the drinking of the bread and the juice to save us. No, we trust in the one to whom they point the one who went to the cross for our sin, the one who took on our sin and gives us His righteousness in exchange for our sinfulness when we turn from our sin and put our trust in Him. The Lord's Supper reminds us that true spiritual feeding on Christ is in repenting and believing. And it is that that we need to remember every single time we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper reminds us that as we feed on Christ, we satisfy our hunger and our thirst in the God who isn't made of wood, in the God who isn't made of stone, in the God who doesn't just give us the desires of our flesh. but in the God who has saved us from our slavery to sin. And as we do that, our hunger and our thirst for these idols fades. This 
This is what we must do. The Christian life is a call to look to Christ at every turn, to love Him and to run to Him and to realize that He is the bread of life and He is the living water that will satisfy our soul's deep hunger and thirst. If you're here this morning and if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, if you haven't yet turned from your sin and the idols of this world that will only ever give you temporary satisfaction, then I urge you to do so today. Take heed of the warning and turn and trust in Jesus. Because the consequences are eternal. The destruction is final. And none of us knows if we will live to see tomorrow. My beloved, turn to him today. And take heart, (laughs) take heart in knowing that as you flee, as you flee from idolatry, he will, he will provide a way out so that you may stand. Take note of what happened to Israel as they ate and drank and rebelled against God. Take heed of the warning for their example and the very risk, very real risk of falling eternally. And take heart. Because God is faithful to his children. Because he loves you. Because he is gracious to you. He will provide a way for you to resist temptation and to stand. Idolatry is deadly and could be fatal. Fatal, just like overconfidently touching a capacitor with your bare hands. Will you fight temptation and idolatry? Will you trust in the God who is with you in the fight by feeding on Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by this passage. We are sobered by the fact that an entire nation, having experienced the wondrous acts that you performed in their lives, could possibly turn away from you. And yet here it is. we're reminded that the very real risk of that occurring to us is ever-present. And so, Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, continue to be with us in the fight, to be with us as we flee from idolatry, And we ask that in your mercy you would provide a way out of our temptations 
so that we may stand, so that we may stand in worship of the King of Kings, of the God who is our great rescuer, of the one who loves us and who gives us Christ. We pray each of these things in his name. Amen.